Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Jennifer Coleman, Senior Program Officer for the Arts at the George Gunn Foundation, and of course, a very proud City Club member. I'm so pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation with artists on how their work helped shape the conversation around social and political issues. Throughout human history, artists have often been the vanguard of social commentary, helping us see the narratives of our communities in new ways. Whether on stage, on the page, on the wall, or elsewhere, artists are often the ones shaping conversation and challenging perceptions of the most pressing and social, social and political issues. Sometimes they do this quietly, allowing the audience to contemplate their own opinions. And sometimes they work with explicitly provocative intentions, especially when it comes to issues of equity and social justice. How is art being used today to advocate for social change? What precipitated the shift? And what does it mean for the role of the audience? This is all the terrain of our conversation today. Let me introduce our panelists. Donald Black Jr. is a local artist, muralist, and educator. Some of his most widely seen work has been the murals at the Harvey Rice branch of the Cleveland Public Library and in Ohio City during last year's Creative Fusion Murals projects. A graduate of the Cleveland School of the Arts and Ohio University, <laughs> Mr. Black is a founding member of Acerbic, an artist collective whose mission is to promote arts education and consultation on how arts education and organizations can reach diverse audiences. Layla Buck, at our end, is a writer, actor, and intercultural educator. A State Department speaker, specialist in cultural envoy, she has worked with the UN teams to craft and perform stories of refugees globally. She wrote the play American Dreams, which is premiering tonight at <laughs> Cleveland Public Theater. We also have Tamila Woodard. Tamila. Tamila, sorry. The director of CPT's production of American Dreams. So we are so happy to have them here, taking a couple of hours away from um, what's going to be a very exciting performance. She's also the co-founder of Pop-Up Theatrics, a partnership creating immersive the theatrical events around the world and in collaboration with international theater artists. Lastly, Rebecca Martinez is an ensemble member at Sojourns Theater, an award-winning ensemble theater company comprised of 15 artists who live in eight cities and make performance together around the nation. She started in one, she starred in one of their current projects, how to End Poverty in 90 Minutes, which just finished a successful run at Cleveland Public Theater with the support of the United Way of Greater Cleveland. Welcome to all of you, and let's get this party started. <laughs> just to open, this panel tops off a very interesting roller coaster week 
in art in the art world. On Monday, the official Obama portraits were unveiled. It's safe to say that the works by Kahinde Wiley and Amy Sherald have delighted many and confused some. <laughs> but they changed the game of what a presidential portrait should be defined as and launched a national conversation this week on art. And just like last year, the White House's budget recommendations that were released this week call for the elimination of the National Endowment of Arts, the National Endowment of Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services, among others, which is prompting another marshalling of forces to support the governmental funding of the arts, which are so important to us all in this nation. So with that said, Let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into your art practices, which are so fascinating. We'll start with you, Donald. Gotcha. Just go down the line. A deeper dive into my artistic practices. Um, I was sharing a story earlier where I was uh, talking to a couple of young ladies that I met, and I was telling them about being in, um, living on the East Coast in Jersey City. Um, I ultimately, in 2008, decided to move back to Cleveland to create images that I knew I wouldn't be able to create anywhere else. Um, so honestly, I mean, a deeper dive into my artistic practice is just positioning myself to where um, I can be in an environment that stimulates me. I mean, I ride a bike and pop willies just so I can have access to 12-year-old little boys in the city of Cleveland. Um, and I'm making a lot of that kind of work specific to you know the work that I showcase so a deeper dive is just that I um, I go to a very very uh, large extent to to create and define myself around stuff that I actually want to photograph um, I, uh, I make uh, I'm interested in the proximity that um, an audience has to the art in front of them and to opening up ways for the spectator um, to be a participant. Um, I'm interested in being close um, to allowing people to have access to be in dialogue with something and to not simply look at it and see it and expect to go home and have the short conversation on the drive home. Um, I'm, I like to sneakily encourage <laughs> people to, who don't know each other um, to, to begin to have a conversation about something that they think they're not supposed to talk about in public. Uh, I think theater is like church, and except that in the theater, uh, a bunch of people from different religions will show up <laughs> to a very um, sacred space. And I think artists are like shamans, and that it's our job to um, be a reflection of the world and to be a conduit for what we feel and want and desire as humanity to be true and real for all the people that we come in contact with. As an ensemble member of Sojourn Theater, one of the things that's uh, important to me and important to us as a company is is how do we as artists use our tools to impact for community good? And we think a lot about partnership in the work that we do. How can we partner? And generally when we partner as a theater company, we partner with municipal agencies or nonprofit organizations or, or in some cases entire small towns that give us an opportunity to to create an event, like you were talking about, Tamela, like a, a, an event, a, a sacred event that brings people together from different backgrounds 
and different ideologies that bring folks together to be able to have a conversation. So how do we use theater to host conversations and bring folks that may not normally share a room together? How we have them join together throughout the event of performance. Uh, I come to uh, making theater through being the daughter of a Lebanese mother who comes from a Muslim and a Christian mixed family um, and an American father who was a diplomat and having the privilege of traveling around the world and living in places and seeing the different way that stories are lived and the stories that are happening simultaneously around the world um, that often seem to be in conflict with each other and living through some of the um, living through several wars um, <clears throat> and seeing how the way those wars were perceived or covered um, and the impact of those wars on the people in the places that we were, uh, how that affected, how the stories that we tell affected lives and particularly in this country, how the stories we tell and believe come to affect lives around the world. So I make theater that is a space for people from different backgrounds to come together and connect in some way to hopefully a story that either resonates for them or that is surprising to them um, and to make connections and explore conflicts uh, across all kinds of borders, internal and external ones. Technical difficulties here. Okay. I think I might be set. Well, like uh, we alluded to at the beginning of um, the talk here, we live in very interesting times. And many artists of all walks of life have has indicated that starting after the 2016 election, that some amazing art is going to be produced in these next four years. Do you think this is true? And how has the current political climate affected your practice? I think I'll start with Tamala. I definitely think it's true. We were just talking about this the, um, uh, just a couple of nights ago. Um, I, I make work um, and get to witness work around the world. And I always thought, gosh, as Americans, we don't really do absurd and satire well, because we don't have to. You know, the. <laughs> <laughs> And then suddenly um, it became, you know, I was in, I was in Cuba like th two, or, two or three years ago and watched this amazing theater company do a beautiful solo clown show that was a satire about um, Castro. No words, two hours long, people falling out of their seats. And I thought, why is it that, that they, that how do they get to this? And it's because there, there's a desire to have a dialogue, to have a conversation, but you don't know who you're talking to. And you have to figure out how to have simultaneous modes of, um, of a conversation happening at the same time so that artists are able to reach um, the people that they're, they're talking with. And suddenly, the environment for satire was born you know, just uh, a few uh, months ago. <laughs> and I've been watching people figure out how to tell a story um, or to uh, invite people to a conversation in a way that is actually, there's lots more comedy, I think, coming out um, 
Um, there are way, there, there's a lot of sci-fi. Um, there's um, a desire to take ourselves out of what we think of as realism and enter more into, um, to shine a light onto how we are feeling, which is sometimes displaced, depending on you know, where you are, um, sometimes without the kind of vocabulary that was useful before, without the same kind of color palette. And I think it's, it's just a, it's an extraordinary moment to be an artist, to find a way to be in dialogue with the current world. Um, I think I often cringe when I hear um, the idea that, you know, a couple years ago, things started to shift and change, uh, because ultimately what I've been experiencing is um, the landscape starting to recognize a conversation that's already been being had for a very long time. And I think the cringe that I often feel is it's almost like this denial of my reality to think that when Donald Trump became the president, that's when everything went started going wrong. Um, the way the landscape seems to change, in my opinion, is it's almost as if there's a, there's a new sense that people are uh, awakening to, and they're able to see things that people have been talking about and been saying and, be cre and been creating um, for the first time in a, in a startling way. Um, I get to observe that process uh, as a spectator, and I enjoy observing it uh, because I feel like people are starting to become a little more aware of what I would call my reality. Uh, being a black man in America, 2018, um, not really perceiving that is too different from being a black man in America in the 1960s. Um, so the landscape is changing. I feel like I've been training for this this war that I find myself a part of. Um, and I often laugh at watching people kind of scramble, you know, in panic, like everything's gonna be best up now. Um, so that's kind of how the landscape has really started to change and affect me as an artist. Layla. Uh, uh, piggybacking on those things, I think, I don't feel like it's changed my artistic practice for the reasons that uh, Don was talking about, um, but I uh, I do feel that there's a sense of empowerment and urgency in what we're doing and an awareness of the importance and need for these things in a broader spectrum of people. Um, so my hope is that it means more people will come to things like theater, have a hunger for things like particularly political uh, theater, as people like to call it, although I don't necessarily subscribe to that term. I think most things are political depending how you look at them. Every story you tell has politics to it, whether you realize it or not. So um, uh, I think, you know, my, I. My training is in the work of Augusto Boal, um, who had you know theater of the oppressed and worked a lot with different communities and used rehearsal as uh, theater as a rehearsal for revolution. Um, the idea being that it's a space where you can actually practice how you respond to situations in life. You can practice that in how you write about them. You can practice that in how you perform them, direct them, design them, and then experience them and what you respond to in traditional theater. And there's of course um, some of you may know uh, Boal's work, many other techniques to do that. But I think um, we're seeing more people um, exploring those kinds of uses of art and the way it allows us to connect beyond the 
dichotomies and the um, the rhetoric that we get so trapped in in moments like now and go to the heart of to me the you know the crux of most issues is that place where it's hard for you to have that conversation with someone you love and if if you can approach that that border um, to me that's where hope lives and I think that's a space that art lives in too so and in, in this past year particularly, I've been thinking even more about uh, audience. Who is in the room? Who is not in the room? Who do we want to have in the room? Who do we want to have to be part of this, this dialogue and this conversation? And I've been, um, as, as an independent artist, I've been in a lot of, of rooms with, with artists making really fierce, provocative art that is speaking very strongly. And I look in the audience and it's artists who are enjoying that art. And, and my question is, who do we need to have in this room to hear and listen to us? And, and who are we trying to reach out to who we've been challenged by? And with Sojourn Theater, this is something that we're constantly thinking about. Like, how do we bring in a complex audience, a group of people from different diverse backgrounds? And it's a challenge. It is very hard. And I feel like, especially in this time where <laughs> We're in a nation that is very polarized. Like, how how do we how do we as artists use our tools to bring people in so that we can have folks hearing and seeing and and engaging with each other and using art as the tool that brings us together? Can I add one thing? To mm -hmm. that? Sorry, uh, th that just makes me think of something. I will say does feel different, certainly in the theatrical landscape for the, over the last year or so is uh, more people, whether it's just from the pressure around them or a genuine desire, more institutions actually thinking about questions of equity and privilege in their work, in their own makeup, in their audiences, in the access people have to their work and how the way you shape it impacts that. Um, so I think that is something that's happening that's important, whether it's, you know, whatever reason it's happening for, it needs to happen. And also uh, people that have been making work outside the traditional theater I think more people are validating the need for that that it isn't suddenly it's not you don't just want to be at the fanciest theater wherever you are that only a few you know that that a relatively privileged few can come to in many cases that there's a v validation of going outside traditional structures to actually be in spaces and create spaces where there's a broader dialogue possible has two innovative productions this season with How to End Poverty in 90 Days and The American Dreams. And they engage the audience in unique ways of starting the conversation about what an audience really is. And they tackle issues that are just at the forefront every day, every hour of every day, which is immigration, poverty, race. Can you speak to them, to these issues, through a lens of equity and social justice? <laughs> well, I'll talk, I'll talk about how to end poverty in uh, 90 minutes. We don't need 90 days, we just need 90 minutes. No, just kidding. But, um, and, well, actually, to say we don't actually think that we'll end poverty in 90 minutes in a, in a theatrical event, so that's not part of it. But one of the things that was um, super important in the thinking and the creation of the show was, first of all, how do we get folks together to have a conversation about where they put their resources towards poverty reduction in their own community? And 
part of what we do in the show is we give out like $1,000 every night. And the audience has to vote where that money goes in their community. They spend that money and they choose where it goes. And so thinking about like that kind of work, we think about how, who, again, who needs to be part of that conversation in order for it to be a, a, um, a meaningful conversation. Like who, we need to have folks from different ideologies, we need to have folks from different backgrounds for that to even make sense, to even have, because we don't want a group of people who are like, oh yeah, we all believe the same way and we think the same way, so how do we, you know, what do we do? But to have folks that can challenge each other and poke at each other and, and complicate their views. And it just made me think like we had one, and as part of the show, we bring in different community folks who have been working in poverty reduction in their community to speak at different times. And there was one speaker, and I don't remember who it was, Raymond, maybe you can help me, but I remember at the end of the night, she came and said, I actually am unclear about my feelings now because, and, and how I would choose to go about reducing poverty and fighting poverty because of the voices in the room have made me think about so many different ways and so many new thoughts that I am thinking in a new way. And so to be a part of that and to, you know, and we're, you know, we're the container. We are just the container. And to be in a place where we can host folks who are authentically engaging with each other is, is a real privilege. That's powerful, the idea of not having someone change their mind completely and okay, I'm done, I got a new point of view, but I need to process this and take that time and do that work. And you know, it's brave to say, I don't know how I feel, but that's you know, in some ways an objective that you want to get to. Tamala, did you want to add? Yeah, I, I would say, I, I absolutely agree, complicating the, the dialogue. I always say in our, in our, what we're doing is the creating a drama inside of the audience themselves and their own, they're having, the theater's happening in them. And that's, we hope that we're creating an hour and a half where they have one idea, then they have a different idea, and then they have a different idea, and they have a different allegiance, and they come out understanding that it's really easy to say that you are this or that, but it is actually actually not true. And that if we begin to actually talk about what we want in the world and what we desire for um, our neighbors or for our neighborhoods, that it isn't always black and white. And that the theater is a place where in 90 minutes you can have an experience where um, it is not easy for you to stay on your side of the line. And that is really our sole objective. <laughs> I don't care what side of the line you end up on, I just want you to approach the demarcation, at least. And see it, yes. <laughs> just first identify what yes. it is. Okay. We talked a, a little bit, I wanted to talk a little about that idea of the interactivity and really challenging the audience because it seems that, uh, and this also goes to visual arts, is what is an audience these days? You know, between theater and having this, this you know, very rigorous thought process that's going on or participation, um, as it is with your productions and others that we're starting to see in Cleveland um, versus the traditional, I'm coming in and I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm having something happen in my brain, but also things are going sort of beyond that in some cases. So, um, and also an audience in terms of visual arts. 
and who, do you, who is your work for? What do you want them, other than what we've talked about today? Sort of what is your ideas about what an audience is and how it's changed? So Don, why don't you start it off? Uh, when I'm thinking about the audience conversation, um, I find myself, my development in art was very, I would say I was in a formal art education setting uh, starting at the fourth grade. And what I noticed is as I took a ride from um, the southeast side of Cleveland, you know, the Kinsman, Harvard, Miles area, I would ride the bus and I would notice how I didn't really see much, uh, much in my neighborhood representing murals and, and art. And as I got closer to University Circle, I would start to see art investment going, getting closer to Buckeye. By the time I'm at University Circle every day, you know, I'm surrounded by the world of art. Um, and I found myself, um, it, it found myself in a foreign place in reference to trying to have conversation with people from my neighborhood and family members. And I'm, I'm learning that I'm in these two worlds, ultimately, my home world and my school world. And I played a long time protecting myself from my home world, in my home world, the art side of me. You know, nobody knew I had a flute in my book bag because it wasn't the right thing. My environment was teaching me that wasn't the right thing to, to share. Um, but what I started to notice is I was sharing the work in both worlds. And I would get one response in my university circle with the quotation marks world. And then I would get a different response when I'm like in my home environment. And ultimately I would describe the difference in the people in terms of the audience. You know, people who know and understand art versus people who don't know quote unquote anything about art. Um, the confusing part for me as a, as a young person, and it's starting to make a lot more sense now, is the people who didn't know anything about art seemed to be giving me the, um, the, the more constructive critiques, the critiques um, that were actually helping me versus in my university circle world, the critiques that I would argue was hurting me. So when I started to really evaluate audience, I started thinking to myself, why am I trying so hard to go into this place with this group of people to try to have a conversation um, creatively? Why don't I think of some non-traditional ways to do it and talk to the people who are in my neighborhood and have a conversation that's more familiar to them. Um, so when I'm thinking this audience thing, it's, it's always a push and pull. Um, I spend a significant amount of time engaging both audiences. Um, but I also think to myself, if I was to die tomorrow, is usually how I preface a lot of my ideas, um, where, would I, where wouldn't I be satisfied? So my thought is, okay, well let me, you know, learn City of Cleveland uh, code and rules and regulations on graffiti and use abandoned boarded up walls and put murals you know out of my pocket because now I can get engage both worlds where it's right in the neighborhood for the people who I feel uh, are familiar to me um, and then you know the the quote unquote art world hears about it sees it rides past it and then it's, it's, it's creating this uh, a full what I would call a full conversation um, so I'm always thinking about audience because that's what the first thing they tell you, most, one of the most confusing things they tell you when you go to school for art is who's your audience. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Everybody I show is my audience. <laughs> so, and then it's, but you know, then these ideas start to manifest and you're like, oh, I'm talking, I'm having a conversation. Oh, you don't know the conversation. Oh, you do know the conversation. And then it's like, oh, okay, so now that I know that some people speak the language, some people don't, 
I would argue that me really trying to figure out my audiences has helped me uh, communicate a little more intentional when I'm talking through some of the work that I'm making. Fantastic. Well, just as we're like getting going, it's time to do the mid-forum announcements for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we are on a schedule. So today we are enjoying a Friday forum with artists on how their work helped shape the conversation around social and political issues. We've heard from Donald Black Jr., an artist and educator, Layla Buck, the author of American Dreams, Rebecca Martinez, an ensemble member at the Sojourn Theater, and Tamala Woodard, the director, producer, and co-founder of Pop-Up Theatrics. I'm Jennifer Coleman, the senior program officer for the arts at the George Gunn Foundation. Right now, we're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those who are joining us via our radio podcast, webcast, or Facebook Live video. And don't forget Twitter. If you'd like to tweet a question to us, please tweet it at the City Club, at the City Club, or leave your question in the comments section of the Facebook Live. And our staff will try to work it into the program. So holding our microphones today, our membership and customer experience manager, Corey Isler, and Youth Forum Council Chair, Teolu Orisanya. May we have the first question, please. Uh, good afternoon. This is such a wonderful topic. Uh, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm a member of the State Board of Education. And because of the national obsession with testing, important subjects like art and music uh, often get shoved to the back. So my question to you is, do any of you share your talents and your gifts with school children? And if you do, could you please talk about how they respond to you? Okay, probably yes, 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 and yes. So <laughs> who would like to expand? I was a, I, I've been a teaching artist for many years. I've taught elementary, I've taught middle, I've taught high school, I've taught um, seniors, I've taught just a lot of different folks. And, and even though I'm not teaching as much as I used to, one of the things that I started doing is working with a company that, that helps students to create and write their own stories and to... Um, to, to have the confidence in who they are and the work that they are doing and their own thoughts and their own ideas. And I, just, just being in that space of giving them freedom to create their own narratives is incredibly powerful. And I've never seen students like grasp onto ideas as I saw them grasp onto having the power to tell their own stories. Um, I, I realized that I've been holding art classes for young people since I was about six years old, where I was the quiet kid who was good at sports, who didn't really care to play sports, and I watched all of the kids run around, and everybody found themselves running up to my sketchbook trying to see what Donald is doing. So I learned at a very early age that people were kind of really paying attention to what I was doing, and I was always making art. So I would hold class with my cousins and I would go step by step and teach them how to draw. Um, and that eventually evolved into me, you know, being the translator in my early photography class from uh, the book information 
to uh, try to figure out how to uh, create, um, what is it, like a mnemonic device, easier ways to remember what the teacher was telling us. Um, so I've been playing this role as the, the translator and educator of art for a very long time. Um, and part of my move back to Cleveland had to do with me working with young people at, a, I was working at Bank Street College doing an after school program. And then I was being invited to participate in Cleveland's artwork summer program and ultimately, um, I taught kids chess, screen printing, and photography and kind of made that all make sense together. And I had a parent send me an email and said, I don't know who you are or what you said to my daughter, uh, but... <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. That, that's not my perception creating that. Um, but me and my family sat and went through your website for about an hour, blown away by your artistry and all this other stuff that I could never even really, really remember what was being said. But it was like, oh, wow, I'm supposed to move back to Cleveland. <laughs> um, I would argue that a huge reason why I decided comfortably to move back to Cleveland was because I felt like I was a quote unquote, or being told that I was a special kid and that I could make it out and that sort of thing. And I started to really think about like, oh wow, the young people in the city that I'm from um, don't have me in it, and they seem to need me as much as I seem to really, really need them. Um, so the young people around me, um, from what's being said, <laughs> seem to really enjoy the interaction. I, I, would, I would call myself, I'm like the big cousin who allow kids to kind of cuss and be themselves. You know, with a lot of real, real strict discipline kind of information that I'm always communicating uh, to them. Um, and I get invited into their world and I'm a, a respectful participant. Um, I have a huge love for art and art education because of what it's been able to provide for me. Uh, so I really, really enjoy trying to share some of that with young people. Fantastic. Okay, sure. Uh, I was, my, a lot of my early training and work was through a wonderful organization called Creative Arts Team in New York City, which is one of the leading theater and education organizations in the country. They do work in all the New York public schools um, and uh, from, you know, pre-K through high school. They do teacher trainings. Um, and through that work, I was able to work also as a teaching artist with all uh, ages and also with teachers, um, working with teachers to, uh, to sort of do trainings on what is the purpose and the value of drama in your classroom, storytelling in your classroom, how can it be used. And um, so many things, but um, from special needs classrooms all th run through the gamut, um, you would have students and teachers uh, who didn't necessarily have any interest in the drama, but it was required, you know, in that moment. And then you would see students, inevitably, the student that someone, a teacher would warn me, I can take them out if you need me to, they're always trouble. And that would often be the student that would be the most engaged in right. what we were doing because it accessed a different part of their intelligence and something um, that they weren't able to, to display, for, uh, to learn for themselves and to display to their classmates. The value of something you know similar to sports in many ways that we're familiar with, you have the kid who maybe isn't always the first one with the answer in another class who excels at something like drama or theater or storytelling or, or uh, photography, art, um, and the value of just their classmates seeing, oh, 
they're really good at that. And what that does for them to excel more in other subjects is, I think, immeasurable uh, beyond all of the ways that art obviously offers us space to express parts of ourselves that we all need um, and to engage with each other in ways that are different. Um, so yeah, I can't speak enough on the value of art and art education um, and that skill set and the people who do that every day um, for our students and how much we need to support them. Um, and each other, right? Okay. Question. Oh, hi. My name is Altari Evans. I'm a rising senior. Well, I'm graduating the Cleveland School of the Arts this year. I major in orchestra, play cello. Yeah. So my question is, like, when I'm looking at this panel right here, I see like African American. I see women, and like being an artist sometimes those two things can like set you back so from each of you guys like what's one thing in particular that has set you back from going to reach your dream of changing political environment through the arts great question i'm gonna say what set me forward that's what i'll say people who believe um in me have, uh, I have had incredible mentors and incredible champions. And those are, um, they don't come out of the woodwork, you have to cultivate them. <laughs> so I will say um, there are loads of things that set me back that I can't always identify because those are things that um, live inside of someone that's not me. Uh, if the gate is locked, go around the back way. If the gate is locked, find someone who's got another key. That's the job. If you want to get in the door, you find the way in. And of course, and I absolutely know, sometimes it takes a little longer. It's taken me a long time <laughs> to get some place that you know my classmates or schoolmates have gotten to a lot, a little, a lot faster and a little easier. But I wouldn't trade the journey. Um, find champions, find allies, make friends, help people, um, open the door. Um, as you're moving up and put a hand down so you can pull somebody with you. You're going to need those people every step of the way. Um, I think I would kind of second with the point you're making. Um, I don't identify setbacks. Uh, I'm a firm believer of, um, you know, it's not over until you stop. And you can look at it in a way where, you know, trials, tribulations, issues, you know, the, the less you have, the, the worse the circumstance, ultimately the, the more you have an opportunity to transform whatever those experiences are creatively. So it's, it's kind of like I got a couple friends who are painters who, who come from what people would call privilege and, and they say things like, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to paint, you know, other than these golf courses. And I'm like, dude, you know, we, we would pick and say, you need to go ahead and get hit by a car. <laughs> you know, because what happens is, in, in turn, when you, uh, without the experiences, you almost, you, you, you seem to have a, a harder time figuring out what to say and, and where to pull this creative energy from and what to apply it to. Um, so I would kind of, I would, I would second the idea of the, the quote unquote setbacks it's perception-based. It's, it's how you see it. Um, I have a lot of experiences in my life, and I just remind myself that they, they make the story better, ultimately. You know, they, they, they become war wounds. They become patches on your, your armor of, of being an artist or whatever it is you're pursuing. Uh, 
So it's, it's all in your mind if it's a setback. Just one thing to add to that, that uh, the doubt of your own worth or value or the worth of what you're doing, I think is some t for me has been, or and I know for many others, uh, the biggest challenge. And so the more you can remember to know that value for yourself and find and recognize the people who recognize it and also are willing to challenge you to make it even better um, in a constructive, forward-moving way, like we're saying, surround yourselves with those people um, and, and don't allow uh, outside judgments of what is good, what is of value, what is worthy, and recognize that, I mean, some of my favorite experiences as an artist have happened in the basements of churches in North Dakota performing for 10 people, or in a high school auditorium um, working with my students, or in a classroom with five kids that nobody else is paying attention to, but I've known every day for a year and I love them. You know, there's, those are some of my favorite moments and that's never reviewed. Nobody writes about it anywhere that anybody else really seems to care about, but it's the most important thing that I carry and it will live with you and, and move you forward always. And what may be perceived about us as a setback for me is um, I'm not formally educated. I don't have a university education uh, or, or degrees as, as many folks in my field do. And, but I have um, surrounded myself always with communities of, of people and artists who value lived experience and life experience just as to be on the same level as, as formal education at a university. And because I've been in those communities, I have been able to, um, I've, I've been able to, to participate in the same way as, as anyone else, and that was never anything that, that held me back. And I'd like to just uh, paraphrase just a commonality is find your positive energy, because that will get you through. And it's not always in the largest theaters or the grandest museums. It could be in that basement. But it's a talent to start to recognize positivity and things that will feed you it takes a while, so don't think that it's going to come immediately. But you find that positivity and that, that good energy to fulfill and refill you because there is a lot of work to kind of take some of your energy. So start learning. The earlier you can do that, the better. And if you can't find the key, uh, build a door. <laughs> Get your kicking shoes. Hi, Harriet Applegate from the AFL-CIO Federation of Labor. I wanted to know, probably the biggest divide we are faced with now is those who support Donald Trump and those who don't. And I was wondering what success you've had with folks who support Donald Trump, or for that matter, who don't see the value of art in society. What kind of success have you had in interacting with those folks, or even finding those folks to interact with? The, the thing that's been interesting for me is the encounter. I don't know about success. Uh, I think that I'm learning um, that the, I, I think you spend your 20s thinking everybody is ultimately the same and that we all can figure out how to live together. And then you spend your 30s going, 
nah, there's some people who are just crazy. And then, <laughs> and then you get to be as old as I am, and you go, well, okay, you think of the crazy people, you know, and then there, there are people who actually can't figure out how to talk to each other, but at least I can figure out how to listen. And that, I think, is um, maybe, I'm hoping, what becomes more available to everybody. I'm right now figuring out I need to listen in a different way because we if, and not always talk all the time. That's what I, I'm calling my success. I don't know if I'm reaching anybody, but I'm changing. I, I would just say this is something that I'm thinking about a tremendous am amount right now, and, and the way not to do it is on Facebook. Like, <laughs> first of all, let's put that out there. It doesn't work, I tried it. But there's a, there's a show I'm working on um, with, through Sojourn Theater that we're, we're calling Don't Go, and we're going to have a chorus of, of, of students, university students on stage with a chorus of strangers. Seven students, seven strangers. The strangers will be ideologically and values very different from these students. And we don't know the answer yet. We're in exploration of like, not, not just, and in, in listening is such a huge part of this, but how do we ask two people from, from very different backgrounds to have a conversation and to stay in that conversation? And that is something that is, is I feel is really critical that we, we need to do now is listen and keep listening to each other. A lot of the work that I also do is uh, as an intercultural educator and what that, that encompasses is a lot of things, but what it means is literally uh, doing trainings and facilitations that are about getting people to communicate and connect who are from different cultures, and I use that word very broadly. A different culture can be that I grew up on this block and you grew up on that block. You know, there's, there's a difference uh, between so many communities, and there's also, as we all know, many similarities. Um, and so I would say for me, I'm not sure that the biggest divide in this country is who supports Donald Trump and who doesn't support Donald Trump. I think it's more, while that obviously is a very visible one for, for many, um, as Donald was talking about, there, there are many things that have divided us and continue to divide us in very stark and complex ways, um, and they go beyond who you vote for, um, and they go to why you vote for who you vote for, and how that sh maybe changes, maybe doesn't. So to me, um, I don't know who my audiences vote for. I, I don't, I don't try, I try not to make assumptions based on how someone responds or speaks to, about who they voted for. To me it's, um, and as Tamela was saying about American Dreams, certainly I try to, with all my work to create a space where it's about how do we, um, you know, I've done work about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I've done work about the Iraq war and different things that were divisive and are divisive in their own ways depending who you talk to. And um, to me it's about how do you um, find how do you speak your own truth and honor what you uh, your values and how do you also make room for listening to something not that is abhorrent that is bigoted that is the violation of someone else's humanity and dignity but the spectrum of things in between there 
where maybe there's room for you to look at yourself, uh, my, me, <laughs> for me to look at myself and say, how am I contributing to this divide in a way that's not helpful? And how can I make space for this person to take one step towards that demarcation with me um, without sacrificing what is integral to uh, the values that I, I hold most dear yeah. and to the dignity and rights of everyone? Uh, Trump supporters. Um, I thought about five different stories to talk about, and then I realized that I don't really know who these people in these stories actually voted for. I would just, you know, in a very, very um, generalizing way, assume that some of these situations I've been in with uh, that were highly, like the race was very, very heightened were Trump supporters. But I don't know that, so I'm not going to talk about those stories. Um, I think to some extent, um, it's like we're all Trump supporters, whether we identify with that or not. Because Donald Trump as the president and presidents prior in the history of this country and slavery and these sorts of things, we all ultimately support the system that creates a Donald Trump before he's the president and ultimately after he's the president. So if what happens is it's just like the wrong person got the microphone. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, they, they gave the wrong person a whole lot of money. I mean, it's in, 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 in my, my perception says Donald Trump, I equate Donald Trump with like, like Kanye West, where <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot of truth to, to learn from what's being said that has nothing to do with, with what's coming out of their mouth. And if you really, really think about that, you know, it's, it's, it's having to, my experience has been having to figure out how to translate all these different languages, you know, code switching in all these different environments. So when, you know, Donald Trump makes a comment and is directed towards African Americans in this country, I'm annoyed that we're African Americans, for one, you know, so, when he makes a comment, it's like, well, that's kind of real, even though, you know, it's like, Dad, you really said it on the mic. But, you know, in a similar way that I would say, like, something that a Kanye West might say. It's like, wow, he actually said it. This person is going to lie to you to your face about it and do it behind your back, and then you will learn what they really meant. And Donald Trump might be the, he's like the opposite of that. So, I mean, I'm going to leave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this, I'm saying, I think we all kind of support it because we support the system that creates them. Very good. Uh, hi, my name is Jacob Watson. Um, I go to Cleveland School of Arts and I'm a senior. And uh, you spoke on the, the arts in the classrooms and I want to know how would you motivate those who are graduating from school who are financially or inspirationally inept to follow through with these things? Financially or or inspirationally at a deficit? Okay. Well, uh, uh, financially, here, here was my strategy. Um, the school, the furthest away from where you live, gives you the most money. <laughs> because they want the demographics of having someone like you on their campus. So look far away. Be willing to leave home. 
That's what I say. Be an adventurer. That's a financial strategy. Uh, an inspirational strategy is what I would, you know, the people who inspire you right now at that table, you know, be in contact. Use each other. Just use each other. My favorite teacher, um, uh, my hardest favorite, one that I hated and loved at the same time, he used to say, steal from each other. And I would say that, steal from each other, steal love, steal inspiration, steal ideas. The way they manifest through you is going to be different. I just want to say one thing. I think you used the word inept. Is, am I right? Just, I would offer to you, I don't, I don't imagine that you're inept. And, uh, and so that is a word that my, my wish for you would be to erase from your association with yourself. Uh, and I say that because it's something I, I, we all, I think many of us, have to do to move forward in the ways we want to. Um, you are not inept. You are apt. You have, you have uh, all the capacity that you need to do the things, to find the door, to kick it down, to go around the back way, to make, find the key, to make the key. And then, you know, all these things um, you have. And if you don't have it in a certain moment, because we all have those moments, whether it's financial, whether it's inspirational, whether it's something else, uh, somebody around you will. And, and the ability to uh, be smart about who you're vulnerable with, I think, is a real asset as an artist uh, and an activist and anything that you do. You know, being vulnerable takes a lot of courage. You know, just make sure you're vulnerable with someone who deserves that honor. And, um, and you can rise through anything you need. Start to think about what you want to do. And try to start to come away from the idea of what you want to be. Because for me, as a, as a kid going, trying to transition into college and which direction I was going to go, you know, the school was only, the school environment was kind of teaching me I had a, a, a small amount of options, you know, and those come with dead, in jail, military, you know, and that list is like, well, dang, like, <laughs> these are my only options. Um, so what I was always trying to figure out is what I wanted to do every day because I felt like I was around a bunch of adults who were doing things every day that they hated. So, and that was them, in my mind, them trying to figure out what they wanted to be when they grow up, you know, which is this conversation that they sell you when you're in school. You think about what you want to do and then you just think about the, the, the um, experiences you can create for yourself that go in the direction of what you want to do not what you want to be. So, you know, so if it's, if it's money, if it's finance, I mean, if you're, you're in the best field because you're an artist. And an artist, one of the artist's jobs is to figure it out, you know, creatively figure it out. I mean, if you play an instrument, if you're a performance artist, you're a visual artist, be as creative on figuring it out in life as you are with whatever the creative medium is that you uh, aspire to use. Right. Hi, it's said that a great work of art will withstand the test of time, and you've discussed works today that speak to the issues of the day. Do any of you wonder, worry, care whether or not these works are going to be important or are paid attention to 50 to 100 years from now? That's what I think about every single day. Um, 
following photography and photo history, ultimately what I felt like I experienced was a void of representation of people who look like me. And then when I did see those people in these books, in these history books, ultimately the artists didn't look like me. So I thought it would be really, really creative to be an insider, creating from an insider's perspective, trying to help fill in some voids that Donald was perceiving exist um, in like photo art history. Uh, so I think everything I'm ultimately trying to do and be a part of is at least trying to figure out how to get it to last for 100 years. Because mm -hmm. apparently 100 years is like the, the, the key number. If it's going to last 100 years, then it might make it multiple generations. Today at the City Club, they, we have been enjoying a Friday Forum with artists on how their work helps shape their conversation around social and political issues, and also how it shapes them from the inside out. Today's forum is presented in partnership with Cleveland Public Theater. Our community partner is Community Partners Partnership for Arts and Culture. Thank you both for your support in promoting today's forum. We thank you all for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Black, Ms. Buck, Ms. Martinez, and Ms. Woodward. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. The forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.